I'd like to have you make your way to John chapter 20, if you would. While you're making your way there, Mark Chitwood asked me to let you know that we are short right now about three helpers in the nursery and up to three-year-old. We could really use the help of some of you if you would be willing to act as servants in the remainder of this hour. I've listened to the sermon once already. It's not that great. You're not going to miss that much. You'd be better off ministering to our children. So if you'd be willing to help Mark and our children ministry in that way, they would greatly appreciate it. It's a family camp weekend, so our numbers have been reduced by those that are up at family camp. I typically get uh, tabbed to uh, preach the weekend of family camp because of Debbie's attitude toward camping. Her idea of roughing it is a lukewarm jacuzzi, and uh, so we're usually uh, in town this weekend, and it's my privilege to teach on this weekend. Uh, Let's turn to John chapter 20. And we want to talk uh, this weekend next about the resurrection of of Jesus Christ. Just by way of uh, beginning our discussion on this subject, it's important to realize just how central to Christian faith the resurrection is. Everything about our faith rises or falls with the resurrection. It is the resurrection of Christ that validates our faith. It's the resurrection of Christ that is the uniqueness of, of Christianity, There is no other system of faith in the world whose founder rose from the dead. There's no other religion that even claims its founder rose from the dead. Uh, Moses was the one who founded Judaism. He's dead. His grave is still with us today. Founder of uh, Hinduism, we don't even know. Names long since lost to history. Uh, buried, dead, and gone. Muhammad was the founder of the Muslim faith. He lived in the 7th century A.D. He's dead. You can visit his tomb today. If you were to go to Red Square in Moscow, you could visit the tomb of Lenin. And he's there. Not looking too healthy, but he's there. (laughs) Christianity is the only faith in the world that celebrates an empty grave, claims that its founder came back from the dead. And Christian faith rests on this bedrock. In fact, uh, if this miracle, what C.S. Lewis called the grand miracle, is not true, then all of the rest of the miracles uh, have really no significance for us today. They're simply sort of historical curiosities. Because if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then the one who demonstrated that power to heal and to liberate and to restore is no longer around to do that for us. But if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then that same Lord that touched people, healed them, set them free, is still living and available to do that in my life and my experience. So the resurrection is central to our Christian faith. And it's an objective fact of history. There are more people that were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, more people who knew Jesus before his death and saw him alive after his resurrection then heard Lincoln deliver the Gettysburg Address. That this is a fact that has better a better basis in history than even the delivery of the Gettysburg Address. Now we know that Lincoln delivered that because there were hundreds of people there who were present and they heard him. They were at the spot. They heard him deliver that famous speech. And therefore we know that, that it happened. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians that there were more than 500 people, most of whom he said you could still talk to. You could look it up. You can call them on the phone. You can send them a fax at their office and get the word from someone who saw it that he has, in fact, raised from the dead. 
thing that uh, has always struck me as a bit curious is that a Christians, Christians are often accused of taking irrational leap of faith, that our faith is something which is purely subjective in the matter of emotion and experience. And yet, in the final analysis, Christianity is stubbornly objective and stubbornly historical. It's grounded, built on a historical objective fact, which is established by hundreds of eyewitnesses. I would like to look at John's account of the resurrection with you in these next two weeks. John's account is different than the rest of the Gospels in that none of the resurrection stories that appear in John's Gospels appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and none of the stories that appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke appear in John's Gospel. I think the reason for this is that John wrote some 30 years later, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them were published around 62 to 63, 65 A.D., somewhere in that neighborhood. And John most likely wrote his gospel around 95 A.D., some 30 years later. He was well aware of the contents of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he wrote his gospel to supplement their account, to give us stories that were not included in the synoptics. Another distinction about John's treatment in his whole gospel is that he focuses on personalities rather than on simple facts. It's John, for instance, who gives us the lengthy exchange between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. It's John who records for us the story of the woman who was taken in adultery. And in this chapter, we'll see that his focus is on the person of Mary Magdalene and her encounter with the risen Lord. We'll go through the first 18 verses this morning. Let's look at verse 1 to begin. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. First day of the week, of course, is Sunday. It actually began on sundown the previous day by Jewish reckoning, but obviously in the dark they would be unable to do what they had come to the tomb to do, so they were forced to wait until uh, dawn's early light on Sunday morning. Now, the reason these women, Mary and the others, had come to the tomb was to finish the anointing of Jesus' body for burial. Proper burial was extremely important in that culture. Jesus' body had been taken down from the cross late on Friday afternoon, too late for them to complete the burial preparations before sundown on Friday, which, of course, began the Sabbath, Passover Sabbath, which was a high Sabbath, and they were forced to... Uh, to stop what they were doing and anointing the body of Jesus before they were finished. Nicodemus, we're told in chapter 19, had purchased 75 pounds of precious spices and ointments to uh, anoint his body, and they didn't have enough time to apply all of those to the corpse of Jesus. The way these spices would have been applied is that the bodies were wrapped in thin linen strips round and around, and the spices were placed in between them and it would act as a preservative on the body. And they simply didn't have enough time to complete the task on Friday, were forced to wait for the Sabbath day to be completed. And now on Sunday morning, first opportunity they have, they come back before the sun had even crested the horizon, there because of their commitment and love for the Lord to complete what they had begun on Friday. Now when they come to the tomb, we are told that what they saw, what Mary saw, was that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. As you're aware, uh, the tombs, particularly of the wealthy, were usually carved out of a face of rock. They were more like a burial vault than anything else. 
And in this burial vault would be probably six or seven shelves on which bodies could be laid. Three on the right-hand wall, three on the left as you walked in, and then usually a shelf, sometimes two, on the back wall of the, of the vault. And the tomb in between burials was sealed with a huge circular stone weighed up to a half ton. And the circular stone was in a groove. And when it was needed, when the tomb was needed to deposit another body, a number of hefty men would apply their brawn to that stone and roll it back up that groove and block it, and then the body would be deposited in the tomb, and then the stone would be rolled back into place. And the stone, we're told, was taken away from the tomb. John uses an interesting verb, a verb which means literally to lift up and to remove. It's the same verb that's used in verse 2 when uh, Mary says they've taken away the body of the Lord. They've lifted it up and removed it. And I think what John means to communicate by that is that what Mary saw when she came to the gravesite is that the stone had not simply been rolled back up the track, but it had been removed completely out of the groove and was laying on the ground in front of the tomb. Now, she draws an immediate conclusion in verse 2, and she races to Peter and John to tell them her conclusion. And so, based on what she saw, she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. If you have a New American Standard, you'll notice next to a number of the verbs in verses 1 and 2 a little asterisk. The asterisk is put in there by the translators to indicate that what John actually used here in Greek was a present tense, but the translators have translated it into the past tense to make the narrative proceed smoothly. But what often happens is that the gospel writers, when they would get into telling a story, get into the flow of the story, they would lapse into the present tense for the sake of vividness, just as we often do when we are telling a story, we will use the present tense. So literally, the way verses 1 and 2 read is something like this, and you can pick up the vividness in the present tense. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene comes early to the tomb while it's still dark, and she sees the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she runs and comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, and she says to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. Adds a real note of vividness to the narrative. Now, the conclusion that Mary immediately drew just from the open entrance to the tomb and the stone, evidently by some kind of violent force, removed and laying on the ground, she immediately concluded that grave robbers had been at work. And she was shocked and dismayed and probably in, in near panic and, and hysteria. Grave robbing was a serious offense at that time because of the respect that was given in that culture to dead bodies. But there were grave robbers who would... Uh, steel bodies for the valuable spices and ointments that could be extracted from the linen wrappings and then resold on the black market. And she was immediately afraid that that is what had happened to the Lord. Your history buffs might remember that after uh, Lincoln was buried, his body was stolen and uh, held for ransom, and the entire nation was shocked and dismayed at this. And when his body was finally recovered, it was reburied in Springfield, Illinois, under tons of cement so that no one could, could do the same thing again. So Mary responds with shock and hysteria to the conclusion that to her conclusion that the body of the Lord had been taken. 
And so she runs, probably a distance of three-quarters of a mile to a mile, from the burial site to the home of Simon Peter, where he was staying in Jerusalem. And also she ran to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. They probably were staying in different places, as indicated by the separation there. She came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. Later in verse 10, we're told that they went away again to their own homes, plural indicating they were staying in separate places. So Mary ran, first of all, to the place where Simon Peter was staying, knocks on the door to wake him up. Typically, they, it's before sunrise. The women are already at work. The men are still in the rack. So she has to get his attention, get him up out of bed, give him this message about the, the uh, theft of the body of the Lord. Then she races to John's house to give him the same message. John's always described in, the, in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved the verb for loved here in verse 2 is the verb phileo rather than agape, the more familiar term. But the verb phileo means to have affection for or to like. This was the disciple above all the others that Jesus had a natural affection for. This was his best friend. And so Mary races to his home as the Lord's best friend to give him this message. And what she reports to them is that the body has been stolen. Notice that Mary says, we do not know where they have laid him. Critics have often accused uh, the Gospels of being in contradiction to one another at this point. They will point out that Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that a group of women came to the tomb. And then they'll take us to John and say, well, look, in John, only Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. But it's clear from what Mary says here that we do not know where they have laid him, that there were other women with her at the gravesite. When they saw the open entrance to the tomb, they discussed it among themselves and came to the conclusion the body had been stolen and they had no idea collectively where the body had been put. And that resolves what is only an apparent contradiction. Again, John's focus is on personalities. He's not denying the presence of other women at the gravesite. He's simply focusing his attention on Mary Magdalene and her experience. Now, in verses 3 and 4, Peter and John respond by an eagerness to find out for themselves if Mary's story is true. Peter, therefore, in response to Mary's message, went forth and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. So in the early morning light, energized by their fear and their apprehension, they throw their clothes on and race through the silent streets of Jerusalem heading to the gravesite. It's amazing how fast you can run when the motivation is strong enough. I heard a story about some guys were asking this cowboy how he killed his first Indian. He said, well, I, I ran him to death. I said, ah, oh, chased him right down. Huh? He said, well, no, actually, I was out in front. But, uh, but Peter and John, out of their apprehension... And dismay over Mary's report, raced to the tomb. John was perhaps younger, maybe in better shape than Peter. He outraces Peter to the tomb, comes there first. Verse 5, And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. If you go as a tourist to Jerusalem, you will be taken to the site that many people think is the burial tomb of the Lord. And if it's the right site, you can see why John had to do this. There are a couple of steps that lead down to a little landing, and then there's a low doorway, which is the entrance to the vault. And John, in order to see in, would have to bend over and stoop to look into the, the tomb. 
Most likely the body of the Lord had been placed on that rear shelf and as he peered into the tomb in the early morning darkness, he saw nothing but the linen wrappings, the grave clothes that had once been around the body of the Lord laying there on the shelf. That's all he could see, but he did not go in. Now, we're not told why John didn't go in, but my guess is that he did not go in to the tomb because he was afraid of what he might find there. He was afraid that the body of the Lord had been stripped of the wrappings and then discarded into a corner of the tomb, and he couldn't bring himself to face that possibility. But Simon Peter, verse 6, as you might expect, is a different breed of cat. Simon Peter, verse 6, therefore also came, following him, huffing and puffing up the trail, and entered the tomb. Notice no stooping and peering in. He just blew right past John, charged into the tomb. And he beheld the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which John could not see from the entrance, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So as Peter's telling this story to his friends and to believers in the church later, what he remembered is as he came into the tomb, he saw the linen wrappings, the strips of linen, laying there on the shelf. And then in a separate place, off by itself, he saw the face cloth, which had been around the head of Jesus. Now the face cloth that he refers to here was a large handkerchief, the kind that uh, a farmer, for instance, would carry in his back pocket to wipe the sweat from his brow. Paul carried the same sort of handkerchief around as a tent maker to wipe the perspiration from his brow. And when a body was prepared for burial, this large handkerchief would be used to tie the jaw shut so that it wouldn't open and stay in that position when rigor mortis set in. And when Peter came into the tomb, he saw this face cloth, which had once been tied around the head of the Lord, uh, wrapped up or rolled up, or a better translation of the verb is folded up and set in a place by itself. As if someone in leisure had undone the handkerchief, neatly folded it up, and set it aside. Lately in our house, our children have been setting the table, and uh, they have been folding napkins in sort of thematic fashion based on what we're having for dinner that night. We had seafood one night last week, and uh, you notice people don't eat fish anymore. It's always seafood. I don't know why that is. We were having seafood for dinner, and they folded the napkins in the shape of a sail to represent a little fishing vessel. And obviously, as you come in and see the napkins folded in that shape, someone at leisure and with care had folded them up. And that's what Peter remembers as he looked. Here are the linen wrappings that had once been around the body, and here, perhaps at the head of the shelf, was the face cloth folded neatly and deposited there. Then, verse 8, John, emboldened by what Peter had done, Frigging, well, we're already in trouble. I might as well go the whole nine yards. He then entered in, therefore, and the one who had first come to the tomb, and he saw and believed. In other words, when he entered the tomb, he saw the same thing that Peter had seen, the linen wrappings and the face cloth in a separate place, neatly folded. And we're told that John believed. Now, we're not told what he believed. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But I think the significant thing I want you to observe here, and this is something that all of the gospel writers emphasize, is that the tomb was empty. That Peter saw with his own eyes that there was no body in the tomb. John entered in and saw with his own eyes that although there were grave clothes, there was no body in the tomb. Now there's only three possibilities 
to explain the empty tomb. One is that Jesus' friends stole the body. But there's no possible motive that anyone's been able to suggest, which was convincing. Friends would simply, in that culture, not do this to the, the, the body of a loved person. They simply wouldn't do it. Too much respect for a dead body. And besides, every one of these apostles died for their belief that Jesus had risen from the dead. People simply don't do that. They do not die for something they know to be a lie. And furthermore, it's impossible to conceal that sort of monstrous deception for very long. Chuck Colson, in a column I read, said that what convinced him that the resurrection was true was Watergate. Because what you had in Watergate was about a dozen men, highly educated, highly uh, committed, and highly motivated, a lot of incentive to conceal something from the public, to conceal something that they knew to be true, but to perpetuate a deception, a lie. And it simply unraveled under scrutiny. It simply couldn't stand up. So psychologically, he said, it's impossible to think that 12 men could so conspire to keep a monstrous lie like this, that Jesus was actually dead, keep that lie from the public, and then furthermore, put their own lives on the line for something they knew to be false. So it's not credible to think that Jesus' friends could have taken the body. It's also not credible to believe that Jesus' enemies could have taken the body because if they had taken the body, the simplest thing to do to put all of these stories about the resurrection of Christ that began to circulate in Jerusalem simply produce the dead body. That would end that discussion right away. So the opponents of Jesus obviously did not have the body. Well, the third explanation is the only one that's rational, and that is that the grave was empty because Jesus had risen from the dead and left the tomb. And that's why I believe the grave clothes were left behind. I've wondered about that. Why didn't he simply take them with him? Well, he left them behind because he simply didn't need them anymore. Dead people need burial clothes. Live people do not. And he simply left them behind in his leisure, just unwrapped the linen wrappings, carefully removed the face cloth, folded it up, and left the tomb resurrected from the dead. Now, what is it that John believed? Well, some people think that what John believed here in verse 8 was that Jesus had risen from the dead, that he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and it suddenly, he suddenly realized that the body of the Lord had simply evaporated, as it were, through the linen wrappings. But I think it's extremely unlikely that that's what John believed. I think it's much more likely that what John believed was the report that Mary had told him. What he believed was what Mary said, that the body had been stolen. Remember, that was the report they'd been given. John came to the tomb, I believe, afraid that the body was still there because Mary hadn't gone into the tomb. She'd simply looked at the opening. She hadn't actually looked inside. So John was afraid the body was still there. When he came in and saw that it was gone, he believed what Mary said. Yes, somebody has stolen the body of the Lord. Now, the reason I believe that is because of the next three verses. They make much better sense if what John believed was the body had been stolen than if he believed that Jesus had raised from the dead. Verse 9 explains why he believed that the body had been stolen rather than raised. For, as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. In other words, it wasn't the scripture that made them believe in the resurrection. It was the resurrection that eventually made them believe in the scripture. At this point, they didn't understand the scriptures. The scriptures had indicated that the Messiah would be put to death, but that it was necessary, he must rise again from the dead. But they didn't understand that at this point, and that's why it was easy for them to believe that the body had simply been stolen. 
And so, therefore, verse 10, believing that the body had been stolen, the disciples went away again to their own homes. Again, that behavior is hard to explain if they believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. At least the last thing they would do would simply go home. They would go out and look for Jesus. Where is he? He's risen from the dead. Have you seen him? They would go round up the other apostles and begin to search for him immediately. The Lord is risen. He's not dead. Where is he? But instead, they simply go back to their own homes, again, convinced that their Lord is not only dead, but gone. And also, verse 11 becomes very difficult to explain then. Why did they leave Mary weeping inconsolably outside the entrance to the tomb if they knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead? So she certainly remained convinced, as they had, that the body had been stolen. Then the account proceeds to verses 11 through 18, which I think has got to be the greatest recognition scene in the history of literature. It's really striking that the Lord's first appearance, and by the way, if you read the Gospel accounts carefully, you will realize that no one came to believe in the resurrection of the Lord, none of the contemporaries, until they saw the risen Lord. They had to see Him and touch Him, see Him with their own eyes, touch Him with their own hands before they believed that He'd risen from the dead. That's another reason that makes me think that they did not believe in the resurrection at this point. No one believed. It's too preposterous to believe until they actually saw Him alive again after they'd seen Him crucified just days before. So Mary remains, in verse 11, outside the tomb. Peter and John go back to their homes. The other women that had come with Mary to the tomb, they go back to their own homes. But Mary stays by the tomb, and it's to her that the Lord first appears. You might expect that Jesus would appear first to the apostles, or perhaps to his own mother, or perhaps to uh, Pilate, uh, some, someone who in that culture would be considered important or significant. But instead, his first appearance is to a woman who, by cultural standards, didn't, didn't amount to much. She was very ordinary and insignificant. Yet I believe the Lord appeared to her first because of the depth of Mary's love for him. She remains outside the tomb, weeping inconsolably. The verb that John uses there in in verse 11 is not the uh, term for quiet weeping, but it's the noisy kind of weeping. She was sobbing as she remained there by the entrance of the tomb. And I think she, she stayed there because she simply couldn't reconcile herself to the fact that her Lord and Master was gone. I've seen this on occasion at, uh, at funerals where a loved one has been taken suddenly and, or tragically and certain family members just can't cope with the loss and they will cling occasionally to the body in the open casket because they are, they are uh, in such grief. And that's the condition that Mary was in. Her grief at this point knew no limits. And I think the reason that Mary loved the Lord so much was because she owed him so much that her love for Jesus was more profound than the love even of Peter and John for him because she owed the Lord more than they did. We're told elsewhere in the Gospel that Mary Magdalene at one time had been indwelt by seven demons who had done their best to destroy her and to, to shred her, and they had made her life a living hell. And then Jesus had come into her life and set her free from these demonic forces and given her life and liberty and peace, and victory, and triumph. And here the one to whom she owed everything in her life had suddenly and tragically been taken from her. And I think the Lord appeared to her first because he wanted to respond to that, the depth of her love for him. 
and to alleviate her grief, which was so much more intense than the others. So she is standing outside the tomb weeping in verse 11, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, the same verb that described John's actions in verse 5. And as she stooped and looked into the tomb, she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord. Notice how personal she is at this point. Because they have taken away my Lord. And I, not we, but I do not know where they have laid him. So as Mary peered into the tomb, she saw two angels dressed in white, one sitting at one end of the shelf on which the Lord's body had been laid, the other sitting at the other end of the shelf where the head of the Lord had been laid. And they ask her a question. They see her, obviously, weeping. And they ask her a simple question. Woman, why are you weeping? Woman was a tender form of address in that time, not a harsh one as it kind of sounds to our ears, but a very tender form of address. And they simply say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And I think that there's a a gentle rebuke in that. The angels are not looking for information. They knew exactly why she was weeping. It's not a rhetorical question either, but they actually wanted her to think about this. Why, Mary, are are you weeping? It was a gentle rebuke. I think what they wanted her to do was to think and remember that Jesus had promised to her and to his other disciples that after he was dead, he would rise again. He had repeatedly given them this promise. And therefore, there was no need, if she understood and truly believed in the promises of Christ, there was no need for her to weep. And I believe that Mary, as obviously could be the only one who was the source of this story, and I imagine that the rest of her life, everywhere she went, people asked her to tell them this story about when the Lord had appeared to her in the garden. And what she remembered out of that episode is these angels asking her this question, why are you weeping? And, it said it, and she must have said, it didn't dawn on me till later why they were asking me this question. I believe it was a gentle form of rebuke that in her, her grief and in the, the stress of those circumstances, she had lost sight of the promises of Christ. This is something that often happens to us. We can get into a blue funk where because of our circumstances seem to be so uh, heavy, so depressing that we lose sight of the promises that God has given to us to sustain us in those times. Martin Luther, who was prone to uh, depression, had slipped into a blue funk for about uh, three days. And his wife, who had a good uh, sense of humor, which you needed to be married to a man like Martin Luther, came down the stairs one morning dressed in a black morning dress. And uh, Luther looked up from his desk and said, uh, who died? And Katie said, uh, why God did. And Luther put his pen down and said, now Katie, God can't die. And she said, oh, I'm sorry, by the way, you've been acting for the last three or four days. I thought sure he had. (laughs) Turned around, marched right upstairs. But I think that's what had happened to Mary. She simply lost sight of the promise that Jesus had given in her grief. Then, when she had said this, when she had explained to the angels that I'm weeping because they've taken my Lord, when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, same question, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And in probably the most classic case of misidentification in history, supposing him to be the gardener, 
She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Her love, not even taking into consideration the impossibility of what she wanted to do. I, she said, by myself will take him away. Now, we're not told why in verse 14 she turned around. My guess is that she saw something in the reaction of the angels to the appearance of the Lord. Some deference, some show of respect or obeisance. She saw their reaction. She turned to see what was causing this reaction, and she saw a man standing there in the doorway. Difficult to recognize, perhaps, because her eyes were dimmed with tears, the early morning sunlight perhaps coming from behind him. Uh, There's also some indication in the gospel accounts that Jesus' appearance was slightly different, that he was recognizable, but he was different. Remember, the men on the road to Emmaus walked with him for several miles, not realizing who it was with whom they were walking. I've just come back from my uh, 20th uh, high school reunion, and uh, I found many people who couldn't believe that it was me. I was real, I don't know what word to use, but black horn-rim glasses, had white walls up to here. I hadn't really grown into my face, and people just simply didn't recognize me until I pointed out who I was. And then they just were, like, freaked out that it it was me. (laughs) Story circulated that I had hired somebody to come as me to this uh, reunion. (laughs) And that's the same sort of thing that happened with the Lord. There was some change in his resurrection body that made him not recognizable at first glance, but then once people realized who it was, it was, it was clear to them that this was the risen Lord. So she did not at first recognize that this was the Lord. And so she assumed that possibly the gardener had removed him to some other plot. And she said, I will go and take him from that burial tomb and finish the preparation for burial. And then in verse uh, 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus simply spoke one word to her, simply said her name. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Literally, Rabboni means my Lord. The I on the end of that word is a possessive. My Lord, my master. And notice that she had to turn to see Jesus, that after she turned and spoken to this man whom she thought was the gardener, she'd once again turned and faced the empty tomb. And when Jesus spoke her name, she turned and realized who it was. All it took was for the Lord to call her by name. Jesus had said in John 10 that the sheep know the voice of their shepherd, and they follow him wherever he goes. Imagine it would be just impossible to to imagine the depth of the tenderness and the compassion that was in the Lord's voice when he spoke her name. But all it took was him calling her by name, and she instantly realized who he was, that this was her Lord and her master, and he had been returned to her. He was not dead, but he was alive. He was risen. And she turned evidently and just seized him in an embrace, just probably fell to her knees and clung to his legs to find him returned to her. And Jesus, I'm sure, allowed this uh, clinging process to go on for some time because of the comfort it brought to Mary. But finally, in verse 17, Jesus said to her, Mary, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren. Notice, by the way, that you know, you, you might expect someone in Jesus' position to say is go to those bozos who deserted me in my hour of need and say to them, 
But he does, and he says, go to my brothers. Just a world of affirmation and acceptance and forgiveness in that one little word. Go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Notice that Jesus is careful to distinguish between the relationship that he had as a son to the Father. I ascend to my Father and your Father, that he was a son by nature and right. The disciples and us, on the other hand, were sons by adoption and grace. And I ascend to my God and to your God. Now, why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus tell Mary to stop clinging to him and then immediately explain that she needed to take the message to the disciples that he was going to ascend? Well, I believe it's because Jesus wanted to communicate to Mary that the relationship that I'm going to have with you now from this time forward is going to be different. That I will no longer be with you physically as I have been in my incarnation, but I will be in you spiritually. That when I ascend to the Father, I will send the Spirit, and by means of the Spirit, I will be able to come and take up residence in your life and be a constant presence with you. Not just an occasional presence, but a constant presence. My life available to you, not just when I'm around, but whenever you need it. Imagine uh, just for a moment if Jesus was still incarnate in one uh, human body. We would have to wait for years simply to get a five-minute audience with him to discuss the problems that we are facing. I know some of the, the gifted psychologists in town have a waiting list which is months long, simply aren't taking new patients because their, their caseload is full. Imagine if Jesus was incarnate in just one body today, uh, how people would line up for months and how long we would have to go without the attention, mercy, compassion, comfort that we need from him. But Jesus says to Mary, let my brothers know that I am going to ascend to the Father and when I do, I will send the Spirit so that I can be not just with you, but in you, constantly available to you. And so Mary does in verse 18. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Next week, we'll look at the rest of John's uh, resurrection narrative and the rest of John chapter 20, see how the disciples responded uh, to this word from Mary and to the Lord. But I think the lesson that we need to take home from this is the lesson that emerges at the very end of this account, that uh, Jesus is no longer with us, but he lives within us, available to us to be our constant companion, constant source of resurrection strength, our source of adequacy and sufficiency, forgiveness, peace, comfort, that he dwells within us and is available to impart to us uh, his very life. Next uh, few moments to finish our worship service this morning, we're going to sing some songs together, which uh, will give us the opportunity to celebrate this great central truth in all history that Jesus has risen from the dead. Let's pray and then we'll worship together. Father, we do thank you for this great truth that you brought your Son back from the dead, that we serve and trust a risen Lord who indwells us and is available to walk with us through all of life's pressures and, and trials. We thank you for that, and we praise you for that glorious gift this morning. Amen.